0: I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Our Father Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's novel of 1818, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, seems to me to clang like a hammer blow against a bell that tolls our doom. Our music tonight will be from trumpeter-composer Dave Douglas and Keystone, his electric group. This song, called Vitalism, comes from the Burst section of his 2010 trilogy, Spark of Being. The music was inspired by Mary Shelley's novel and emerged from a collaboration with experimental filmmaker Bill Morrison, who produced a kind of adaptation of the novel also called Spark of Being. quote Victor Frankenstein, None but those who have experienced them can conceive of the enticements of science. In other studies you go as far as others have gone before you and there's nothing more to know. But in the scientific pursuit, there is continual flood of discovery and wonder. Whoops, I misread that. There's continual food for discovery and wonder. I think it works either way. This is the very path that leads to our present orientation. Adrift among the chemists and cognitive scientists proclaiming the drive to glory and victory over death is but the neutral path all the enlightened among us must tread. We're destined to be the maker of ourselves. Shelley disabuses us of this notion, as have many who have come after her. But one lesson perhaps not often learned is that the novel is a treatise on being a parent. The microcosm of our social future in the world begins with the circumstances of childhood. Our guest tonight is Monique Morgan, Associate Professor of English Literature at Indiana University here in Bloomington. Her research and teaching concerns the ways literary excuse me, literary form influences readers' intellectual, ethical, and emotional responses. She's the author of Narrative Means, Lyric Ends, and a work in progress. Is that still correct? Yes. Is it still a work in progress?
1: It is still a work in progress.
0: <laughs> Narrative and Epistemology in Victorian Science Fiction. Welcome to Interchange, Monique Morgan.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Our uh, Frankenstein is our program, our topic for the program, but we need to start with the author, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. That name itself displays quite a pedigree.
1: Indeed, she did not start her life as Mary Shelley, that's her married name, which we'll get to shortly, I'm sure. Um, But her parents were Mary Wollstonecraft, um, arguably the first feminist to really hit the scene in England, um, and William Godwin. Uh, Both of her parents were both novelists and philosophers and uh, political radicals, each in their own way. So Wollstonecraft uh, advocated for women's equality, was uh, very much in favor of expanding women's education, So that the reason that women were treated as childish and irrational is because society had basically forced them to be that because they had no other options. Uh, William Godwin was an anarchist and an atheist and a utilitarian philosopher who thought we should all act based in disinterested, rational decisions about what's for the well-being of the greatest number. Um, And he thought that government should eventually die away. they were both against the institution of marriage, as it was then uh, known, because they thought it was just so radically unfair towards women. Mm. When they got sexually involved, uh, Wollstonecraft quickly became pregnant, and they decided that they did not want to foist the social stigma of being born out of wedlock on their future future child. So they decided to get married <laughs> against yeah. their broader ideals.
0: To choose the lesser evil, I suppose.
1: Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin was born. And uh, less than two weeks later, her mother died from complications due to childbirth. So yeah. the, the difficulties of childbirth, the dangers to both children and the mothers, um, are something that I think it's, it's tough for 21st century readers to fully understand because our situation is so different. But the precariousness of parenthood um, seems to just suffuse this novel.
0: Mm. So uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, author of Vindication of the Rights of Woman and then also vindications, uh, uh, Vindication of the Rights of Man as well, yes. uh, and beat Tom Paine to that, actually, right? She was a uh, reporter uh, as well, a journalist in a, uh, of the French Revolution, is that and correct? And a
1: travel writer. Oh, yeah,
0: yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is how she and Godwin kind of met, he he admired her work.
1: Indeed, yeah. yes. Yeah. Godwin was a fan of Wollstonecraft. Mm. Percy Shelley was then a fan of Godwin. Ah, right, and that right, explains right. how Percy Shelley met Mary. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Uh, I, I do like that Godwin was an anarchist, and a, a, um, a, he was uh, well known for an inquiry concerning political justice and his novel, Caleb Williams. Uh, Shelley himself, Percy Shelley, uh, was a big fan of that inquiry, I think. Is that Correct.
1: Yes, he was uh, very much a fan of uh, Godwin's strongly leftist thinking. Um, Percy Shelley, he was also a a political radical and an atheist, so he was drawn to Godwin's ideas. you know, in terms of uh, models of familial structures, mm-hmm. uh, Godwin is kind of an, an odd person to turn to because one of the weirdest sections in his enquiry concerning political justice is a demonstration of just how disinterested you should be in your moral decisions. Mm-hmm. So he comes up with this famous example that um, if there's a fire in a building and there are two people, and you only have time to rescue one, you should rescue the person who will go on to make the most benefit to humanity in general, (laughs) regardless of your relationship to either of those people. So, you know, if the master Mm -hmm. of the house is some eminent philosopher um, and his servant happens to be, say, your father or your brother, Mm -hmm. you should still rescue the philosopher and not the family
0: member. You think he was arguing for his own rescue. Be sure if the house is on fire, you get me.
1: Well, if that's true, then he's only partly successful because when Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein, she names the creature's first victim William, Mm. which is her father's name. Poor dad. Yes, although she also dedicates the novel to him.
0: Mm. Well, it is a, a big part of the book, as you say, the, uh, the idea of uh, childbirth, childbearing, parenting. These are issues throughout the novel as well. Um, the, uh, the fact that Percy comes on the scene uh, early as well, he's a, he's a wealthy person. This is part of his interest or Godwin's interest in him. Godwin himself believed that, that people such as himself should also be supported in some way for their thinking for their work, right?
1: Yes, Godwin was constantly finding himself in debt, and uh, Percy was the son of an aristocrat and due to inherit a lot of money when his father passed away. Um, So Percy was a sort of funding source for Godwin.
0: (laughs) So uh, very happy when uh, Mary made friends with Percy.
1: Well, up until the point that they eloped. Uh So in 1814, Mm -hmm. Percy Shelley, and mary fall in love and run away together percy is married to someone else at this point Mm -hmm. his wife's name was harriet um
0: they have children too
1: yes so uh percy ended up becoming legally estranged from his children he was seen as unfit because of his sort of moral idiosyncrasies sexual idiosyncrasies and his
0: atheism was that a problem as well or is that
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, certainly, yes. But I think Mm. it was more the perceived immorality of him eloping Ah. with someone else while still married to Harriet. Mm -hmm. Um, At any rate, despite the fact that William Godwin was against marriage as an institution, he was aghast when his daughter ran away with Percy Shelley. He would
0: have preferred her getting married?
1: uh, Apparently, yes. Mm, So it it caused an estrangement that lasted for years and years Mm. between... Uh, father and daughter,
0: and that's in 1814. Is that it's right? It's in
1: 1814, so she was 16 at the time.
0: 16 years old, run away to wherever with Percy on a European tour of sorts. A
1: European tour, mm-hmm. indeed.
0: With the rock star, he was—he wasn't quite famous yet, right? Or he'd already done, though published a fair amount of poetry.
1: He had published uh, a fair bit. Uh, he was more notorious nah, than famous okay. no- at I this like point. Mm-hmm. Um, a bad boy. He, yes, his atheism had already gotten him in trouble. He was kicked out of. Oxford, I believe, Mm -hmm. uh, for publicly proclaiming atheism and trying to convince other people to become atheists. (laughs) Um, His poetry certainly got him some acclaim in radical circles. Mm -hmm. So the publisher Lee Hunt, who was also a poet, uh, was quite fond of him. Um, But his star had not risen nearly as high as, say, Lord Byron's, uh, who later joined them in their continental trip. Right, Who joins
0: us in the story later. There's, Indeed. Yes, okay. yes. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show tonight is Our Father Frankenstein. I'm joined in the studio by Monique Morgan, Associate Professor in the Department of English at Indiana University here in Bloomington. Uh, so we've got a, again, I think it's important to stress how young Mary Shelley, she's not Mary Shelley yet, she's Mary Godwin still when she runs off with Percy Shelley, bad boy poet and uh, they go about living a life, uh, a Bohemian life. Is that a proper term, or is it not proper to use that term right now? Is that an, uh, uh, what am I looking for there? Anachronistic. Thank you, thank you.
1: Um, The term becomes more popular later, but it certainly applies Mm -hmm. to them, Mm -hmm. right? They're they're spending their time traveling from place to place. Uh, It's all very, um, you know, temporary and and haphazard. Um, So, leaping ahead a little bit, Mm -hmm. the summer of 1816, they're hanging out in a villa near Lake Geneva. And uh, the people in the house are Mary and Percy, uh, Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, uh, Lord Byron, who is having an affair with Claire at Ooh. this time, and Byron's personal physician, John Polidori. Poor John. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, he does achieve literary fame of his own.
0: He does. You know, this is a good circle. It's one of those things that uh, that is important to note also. Uh, Lord Byron, um, John Polidori, Percy Shelley all meet untimely ends.
1: Indeed they do. Yeah, uh, the second generation of... English romantic poets had incredibly short lifespans, So uh, yeah, um, Percy Shelley dies in a drowning accident when a sudden storm overtakes his boat in 1822. Uh, Byron dies in 1824 at the age of 36. Um, he contracted a fever while spending time trying to raise troops and resources for the Greek independence movement.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he dies of, of medicine as much as his fever, it sounds like, too. I mean, he had uh, bloodletting or whatever? He,
1: uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so the, the medical practices then would be met with a lot of skepticism <laughs> right. by today's standards. Uh, yes, so yeah. he had a, an early death as well.
0: So they're traveling around, they meet, they meet up at a castle. Is that right, also, or is it somewhere else?
1: Castle, I think, is a little grander Uh, than a chalet. Actually, yeah, chalet, I think, would be more accurate.
0: And they meet up, and uh, they uh, this now you tell the story because uh, all I know about the story is that she has a dream, but there's um, there's a contest, right? There's a a ghost
1: story Mm -hmm. competition, right? So um, it's an incredibly dreary, rainy, stormy, cold summer, and there's a whole backstory to that, which boils down to the previous year a volcano erupted in in Indonesia. So Mount Tambora is arguably the biggest volcanic eruption in the historical record, Mm. uh, in sort of recorded active history. Geological records have some bigger ones. Uh, But it spewed so much ash and gas and particles in the atmosphere that it blocked out sunlight across the globe. There was a three to six degree Fahrenheit drop in average temperatures. Um, The effects lasted for about three years there were crop failures, wow. famines, droughts, floods, so the food and mm. flood the fine, yeah, <laughs> mistake I did, I did actually purpose, is, really. is really appropriate. <laughs> um, and so people were impoverished and starving, um, plus 90,000 people approximately were killed in the immediate vicinity the actual, of the wow. volcano. Hmm. Um, so 1816 was known as the year without a summer yeah. because it was so cold and so rainy in Europe, and so they couldn't spend much time outdoors mm. They entertain themselves indoors, reading ghost stories, and then they have the idea that they should each write their own. And at first, uh, Mary Sh- Mary Godwin, as she was known then, uh, had some trouble coming up with an idea. And she went to sleep and had a dream. And the sort of central part of the dream is the notion of the character who becomes Victor Frankenstein, the scientist, uh, asleep in his bed, and he's awoken by the curtain being pulled back, and this horrible disfigured creature staring down at him in the moonlight. And Mary Shelley just found this so compelling and so terrifying that she made it the the central Mm. episode in what ends up becoming a three-volume novel, Mm. right? So Mary Shelley is the one uh, member of this ghost story writing contest who actually finishes her own story. There's one other published result of this, which is actually Polidori's. Mm -hmm. But he ends up stealing the idea that Byron had. Byron writes a fragment of a vampire story but Mm. never finishes it. And so Polidori steals that idea, turns it into a short novel called The Vampire, spelled Y-R-E. it's first published uh, falsely under Byron's name. Mm. Well, and then he's, a they fam- ha- he's famous. He's much. He more is famous. a rock
0: star. Yeah, he is a rock star.
1: Indeed, at this point. he yeah. is arguably the first celebrity mm-hmm. in European culture.
0: Um, Good to tag his name. You're going to get some turnover on that one.
1: Indeed, yeah. um, and even if he hadn't been wrongly named by the publisher as the author, people would have suspected him anyway because it was such a Byronic story, and the vampire character is so clearly modeled on you know aristocratic bad boy Byron.
0: <laughs> right. This is good stuff, right? This is the heart of romanticism right here. So,
1: Indeed. <laughs>
0: right. Uh, Polidori then goes on to die at 25, I think, of uh, what we assume is suicide, although I don't know that it's it's been confirmed. This is Wikipedia knowledge on my part, just so you know. Don't blame me. Blame Wikipedia and all those editors. Uh, so uh, anyway, f- 25 is very young. Uh, and again, Byron dead at 36. Shelley, uh, Percy Shelley dead at 26. Five or six? Uh, Let's see. He died in 22?
1: He died in 1822. Okay.
0: Yeah. That's close enough. He was young. He was very young. He wasn't quite. Yeah, he was around 30, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, again, one of those things that we have to, uh, I think it surprises us sometimes, and we'll talk about this later in in the show, uh, because we all know Frankenstein. Uh, we all know the book, and we all assume Frankenstein in our thinking. We, th- we think we know what it is. We know where it comes from. But uh, the backstory of this is literally uh, romanticism. You know, it's literally a literary period, a literary uh, um, uh, style. It's, it's, it's the world that we came out of in some sense, right? And so the book sits right in the middle of that space um, where these things are happening. Uh, so we'll actually take a break and come back and talk about that. What's going on at the time? The novel is written besides the volcano. There's lots of interesting things going on in science at the time as well. It's time for a break. We've been talking about the radical life of Mary Godwin who would become known as Mary Shelley and author of Frankenstein. We'll hear another from Dave Douglas and Keystone. This is Spark of Being off of Expand, the second section of his trilogy. More on Our Father Frankenstein with Monique Morgan when Interchange returns on WFHB.
2: Support for Interchange comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of internet, voice, and TV service. Now also offering home automation and security systems for homes and offices throughout South Central Indiana. More information on Smithville's home automation service is available at smithvillesecurity.com.
0: Welcome back to Interchange. Our show tonight is Our Father Frankenstein. I'm joined in the studio by Monique Morgan, Associate Professor in the Department of English at Indiana University here in Bloomington. In our first segment, we looked at a bit of the soup of Mary Goblin's childhood, which we need to remember is the bulk of what she lived prior to writing this book when she was 18. So uh, her childhood is formative, obviously, and goes into this book, what happened at the time, what happened in her household, what happened around the um, the rock star circle she was living in, as well, with uh, friends like Lord Byron and uh, a lover like Percy Shelley, the bad boy atheist poet. So uh, Mary Shelley, in the middle of all this going on, and we we have to uh, we have to look at the time as well. Uh, the time uh, was sort of bustling or bursting with new ideas. Science was, I guess, exploding in some sense, trying to figure out what was going on in the world and what was going on with people also, how The question of life and death was a big one as well, and uh, as we've talked about these, a lot of these people being atheists, at least in this group, maybe not the scientists. I'm not sure about that. uh, There's a sense of how we how we understand the sort of line between life and death as well, which is kind of an interesting aspect. Uh, So, is God in charge? Is there a spark of life? Is there is nature? Does nature organize a particular way and make life happen through organization? So, all these things are in the mix and part of the the novel as well. Let's jump. Been with, uh, I guess, vitalism first. Is there, a, is there a, an ex? Uh, I guess, a, give us a definition of that, Monique.
1: So, vitalism is the uh, theory at the time that, uh, in addition to just the material, um, the raw material, the matter that goes into organic living beings, that to that must be added some. Sort of essential substance that is the essence of life, the vital principle. Mm. And so uh, some thinkers described it as a, a fluid, either a liquid fluid or a sort of ethereal mm-hmm. fluid, something like a gas. Um, electricity was often suggested to be a candidate for uh, this vital principle, the thing that you need to add to matter to infuse, you know, potentially literally a spark of life. Mm-hmm. So there was a a debate whether vitalism was going to be, in the end, the correct model or if it was just a more material-based mechanistic universe where there isn't some special thing added that distinguishes living matter from non-living matter. Hmm. Um, On the side of vitalism were a number of scientists who uh, seem to have contributed ideas to Mary Godwin when she's she's writing Frankenstein. Um, So one of them, who is mentioned very briefly in the preface to the novel that Percy ends up writing later, is Erasmus Darwin. Mm -hmm. So there's a a mention of Dr. Darwin. And in this case, it's not Charles. Charles arrives on the scene later. It's Charles's grandfather, Mm -hmm. Erasmus Darwin, um, who was a famous botanist and sometimes expressed his scientific ideas in poetry. Mm. So he has poems like The Loves of the Mm. Plants, and he was on the side of vitalism uh, and also believed that life could spontaneously generate from dead matter, uh, especially from decaying parts of, you know, dead life forms. And so the current understanding of what he was actually seeing is that he had basically contaminated samples, right? Ah. That there were, you know, insect eggs okay. that he thought then right. produced spontaneously right. um, additional life, right? Mm. So Erasmus Darwin gives, gives the novel the idea of life emerging from dead matter, um, he also thought that electricity might be this necessary vital principle mm. to infuse life. Uh, he was a big fan of Benjamin Franklin stealing electricity mm. from the thunderclouds. Uh, and so that makes its way into the novel as well. Um, and Erasmus Darwin actually had some early notions of, of evolution, mm. that life evolves from simpler forms to more complex forms. And while Erasmus Darwin seems to have believed in God and and didn't want to see his science as in direct conflict with a religious viewpoint, he did point out that, you know, his theory would then preclude a model of God, you know, creating each individual species mm-hmm. separately, right? That it was a more an ongoing, continuous process that God sets the beginning of the process going, right, right. and then things develop and mm-hmm. become more complex over time.
0: Well, that's uh, so. So God does uh, does enter into this in many ways. The arguments against uh, a mechanistic universe we have to, uh, I guess, look to Descartes for this. This, I guess, I don't know if he's the beginning of this idea, but the the sense that um, you know animals are, are machines, soulless machines, things of this nature are. This is feeding into this as well. Is there a um, is there a way in which these people are trying to save God or put God into the mix somehow, and say this this we can have these arguments, but there there have to there has to be God in here somewhere?
1: Uh, well, certainly there were a lot of thinkers on the side of uh, what was then called natural theology, mm-hmm. and now is very close to intelligent design, oh, okay. right? Mm-hmm. And so um, Paley, William Paley. Uh, writes a book called Natural Theology and he uh, uses a uses a very mechanistic example of a watch. If mm-hmm. you find a stone and a watch, the stone doesn't show any signs of being designed for a purpose, but the watch certainly does. Mm-hmm. And then he makes an analogy from that watch to a very complicated organic being, an animal or especially a human being. and he claims that you know through a long series of analogies that it's it's as ridiculous to look at one of these complex organic beings and think that they weren't designed as mm-hmm. it would be to look at a watch and think that that's not designed, mm. right? Um, so the, the complexity that, you know, goes along with a the theory of evolution could in some context instead be used as an argument for God's role right. in creating the universe.
0: Well, so we have also in, at this time uh, 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 Galvanism is, uh, is something to talk about as well, is it Luigi Galvani?
1: Yes, mm-hmm. Luigi Galvani uh, was an advocate of what he called animal electricity, right? So he was an early experimenter in electricity. He used uh, what are called voltaic piles, which are basically early forms of batteries for You're storing okay. and then discharging electricity. Um, He would connect these early batteries to uh, body parts of slaughtered animals, and the electricity would then um, produce muscle contractions, Mm -hmm. right, so these dead body parts would start moving, moving, which seems very relevant (laughs) in the context of Frankenstein. Um, It was actually his nephew, Giovanni Aldini, did a lot of basically promotional work across Europe on behalf of his uncle to try to popularize these ideas. So he would do public demonstrations of galvanism um, and he would connect various body parts of animals like the head of an ox or a frog's legs or the body of a dog. Um, but the most notorious example was in January of 1803. Um, he connected to batteries, various body parts from the just-executed murderer Thomas Forster, who had been uh, hung at Newgate Prison and then was this test subject one hour afterwards. And so Aldini uh, made the now-dead criminal's jaw quiver, his eye open, and his fist contract. Mm. Um, And we're pretty sure that these sorts of demonstrations influenced Mary Shelley uh, because Polidori, Byron's personal physician, who's part of this ghost story competition, uh, saw galvanic experiments performed in Edinburgh. So we know that, you know.
0: It's part of the chat. Chatter, yeah. While they're talking, they're talking about the ways that uh, life is and how it works, I guess. That's uh, the attempt to discover the way things are. Oh, that's pretty f- fascinating let's uh, this is Doug storm it's interchange on WFhb our show tonight our father Frankenstein I'm joined in the studio by Monique Morgan associate professor in the Department of English at Indiana University here in Bloomington so let's uh, so we have all this in the mix this is this is going on where life is being trying to be uh, understood and reanimated in, in many ways what is the principle of life you know how do we how do we live ourselves and is there a way to bring us back to life in some Sense Right. So into all this, though, we have uh, literature as well. Though obviously, uh, Mary Shelley, Mary Godwin at the time, uh, you know, knows plenty of, uh, of probably Bible stories, knows her Milton. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is the soup, again, that, that she comes out of as well. Milton is is a big part of this is uh, the story also. Uh, so well, also we should note that the title is Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. So let's start there, actually. So we'll start with, who is Prometheus?
1: So Prometheus is a mythological figure who uh, supposedly stole fire from the gods and gave it to man uh, as a gift to basically help them by giving them technology. Right, And right. It, so in some versions of the myth, it's giving them basically all technology and all forms of the arts, mm. um, all ways of trying to control and master their environment. Mm-hmm. Um, in other versions of the myth, Prometheus also molds man out of clay mm. and is a creator figure like Victor. Mm. Right, So it makes sense that Victor is a modern Prometheus, mm-hmm. modern in the sense of using not magic or the powers of gods, but instead using science. Mm. Um, Prometheus is punished for his transgression. He is tied to a rock, and each day an eagle eats his liver, Liver. and each night it grows back. Like the liver does. All over again. The liver
0: grows back. It's an interesting story, right? Right. How did they know this? It's pretty amazing, really. (laughs) Oh, the liver. Uh, So, Prometheus is our uh, template in some sense here. The uh, Frankenstein being Prometheus-like, but not God-like.
1: Well, uh, so, Victor, Frankenstein, is often seen as usurping God's role Mm -hmm. in being a creator of a new species, like Mm. creating a new life form. Uh, outside of the normal means of sexual reproduction, mm-hmm. right? So uh, the comparison to Prometheus both seems to emphasize Victor's creativity, his power, his almost godlike status. Um, but also Prometheus is known as an overreacher, yeah. right? So he's punished for it. And Victor is certainly punished for his transgressions, too. Mm, sure. Prometheus also means foresight. hmm And if there's something that Victor is sadly lacking, um, it's foresight, Hmm. right? And this gets to the notion that Victor is a horrible parent (laughs) who immediately (laughs) abandons his newborn creation and lets it wander through the cold in the wilderness for, I think, three years. It's
0: it's very sad, yes. It's Um, pretty awful. Well, so so parenting is an issue here. And uh, Victor Frankenstein, we find out early on, Uh, was raised in a a loving home, had loving parents uh, who was uh, encouraged to do the things he wanted to do. They also adopted uh, Elizabeth who turns out to be the love of his life but she was uh, also treated in a very loving kind way and it uh, it is to Victor To overreach himself. It is to Victor who feels like he can do these things. So it's an interesting comment on the product of what we call good parenting, I would assume, turns out to do these things.
1: Yes. Has no
0: moral compass, really.
1: Right. I think one of the reasons that this novel is so popular and enduring is that it asks really fundamental questions about who we are how we treat others Mm -hmm. what our fundamental nature is and it doesn't really give any easy answers and often it seems to give contradictory clues clues that go Mm -hmm. in two different directions so there's a lot of focus on on the way that victor mistreats and abandons the creature Right. right it's a very Bad model of parenting and that leads to debates about well is the creature inherently evil or does he become evil because he's so mistreated because mm-hmm. of Victor's mm-hmm. bad parenting. It's
0: nature versus nurture.
1: Right, right. and right. Percy Shelley comes down hard on the side of nurture he thinks that the, the moral of the story is treat a person ill and he will become wicked mm. but as you point out Victor has an ideal childhood he has doting parents who Nothing love Nothing wicked him. about him
0: nothing so, at it, all you know. he
1: seems to you know have an ideal model of parenthood right. to look towards and yet he completely ignores that and completely isolates himself from his family right. during the process of creating putting together the creature so following that
0: ambition yes
1: yeah. isolating himself mm-hmm. making himself a singular case right. who's as unusual as the creature that he ends <laughs> right. up putting together
0: right so this is this is again important to say that you know uh, the perspective of victor frankenstein is uh, is on display or or investigated in the novel itself we're trying to really understand what he's doing that is is possibly what I would say is wrong, or, and I get in trouble for using these value terms, I suppose, but this is the question of the novel as it goes forward into the future. What should we do? What, even though we can do things, should we not do them? Um, the the creation of life the uh, the consequences of this that's it, a part of this, part of the novel and part of what I can't say Mary Shelley intends any of this one of the things that I think is important too is that it is a, a story uh, conceived at uh, at a young age and written at a young age and as as we as you just said Monique there's lots of contradictory things going on in it so we could say it's a it's a it's a kind of uh, a bunch of ideas that are kind of warring in themselves and within the novel. Uh, so where, where do we come down? As you say, Percy Shelley comes down in, uh, in one space. Did, did Mary Shelley ever say, this is what, the no- what I wanted people to take from the novel?
1: She never says anything that explicitly, but as she gets older and revises the novel, she makes it more sympathetic towards Victor mm. in its later version mm. than it is in its original.
0: Yeah, not so good in the original. Right. Yeah. So Victor does, as you say, gives birth in a sense to Frankenstein. He makes he makes him a very large creature, primarily so it was easier to work on, I believe. Yes, right? <laughs> right. yes. There there's certain details
1: that don't hold up <laughs> yeah. so well to <laughs> he really had to be scrutinizing. An tall creature, yes.
0: Uh, because he maybe he didn't sew very well or something. You know, they, they just, it was just too hard to work. <laughs> 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 How we get an eight foot tall creature? Okay. Anyway, so but the but the the thing is that this is a an abomination to him, right? He gives birth to an ugly creature to him, right? Yes, so this is a real part. The real issue too is that the aesthetics of this is imp- it's important as well,
1: right? Uh, and and he claims that while he's working on the creature and stitching it together before he imbues it with life, that he selects each part to be beautiful, mm. and so. Um, you know some academic readers of the novel tend to think of the creature as in some ways feminized Mm. even though it's obviously a male creature um, because Victor's so focused on the beauty of individual parts that seems analogous to the way poets love to you know describe individual body parts of the beautiful woman that they're enamored with Uh, but once it's all stitched together literally and then animated and moving and has its own agency mm-hmm. suddenly it's horrible right, right? Um, there is almost a female creature in the novel and and so one of the ways that Mary Shelley asks us to think about Victor's responsibility even after uh, animating the creature is that the creature wants company mm. you know because it's so disformed uh, and disfigured deformed and disfigured um, it's an outcast from society, right? No human right. beings will react to him positively. He attempts to make friends with a blind man. Right. Once the blind man's family members show up who are able to see, they you know, violently uh, expel the creature from their house. Uh, so the, the creature thinks that his only chance at companionship is if Victor makes a female for him through the same methods.
0: Right, right to have a friend.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Victor, this time around, actually thinks through the possible consequences. Right? Cons- so he, he, he recognizes that he does have a sort of moral obligation. He doesn't do to a great job of thinking
0: it through. Like, they're very selfish reasons. Like, yeah.
1: Yes, but then he also thinks that, well, if these two creatures are able to reproduce, they could propagate a whole new species that are larger, stronger, more agile than Homo sapiens. I see. seeing
0: the worst in them, though. Yes, yeah, he, does right. he does imagine the worst. He does imagine the worst. Right. Uh, I'm Doug Storm. It's time for a break. We've been talking about the genesis of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Here's another song from Dave Douglas and Keystone. This is Creature Code off of Burst, the final grouping of his Spark of Being trilogy. More on Our Father Frankenstein with Monique Morgan when Interchange returns on WFHB.
2: support for WFHB comes from Growing Opportunities, a social business project of the South Central Community Action Program. Growing Opportunities is an urban hydroponic farm that provides job training opportunities for low-income people with barriers to employment, especially those with disabilities. Growing Opportunities also grows produce sold to local eateries, supermarkets, hospitals, and schools. Information available at 812-332-2168 or online at insccap.org.
0: Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show tonight is Our Father Frankenstein. I'm joined in the studio by Monique Morgan, Associate Professor in the Department of English at Indiana University in Bloomington. In our previous segment, we talked about the science of the time, vitalism and galvanism in particular, uh, to be moved or to be organized, God or nature, nature versus nurture. And uh, we talked about the ugliness of the creature as he is formed and Frankenstein's abhorrence of him. Let's turn to something a little lighter at this point.
2: Now, that brain that you gave me, was it Hans Delbruck's? No. Ah. Good. Uh, would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry. I will not be angry. i be someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Abby normal. I'm almost sure that was the name. <laughs> Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long. Fifty-four-inch-wide gorilla! Is that what you're telling me? Quick, quick, get
1: up! What? Three syllables, yes? Uh,
0: Young Frankenstein. Gene Wilder, um, Marty Feldman. Uh, Terry Gar is in that scene, barely at the end there, you can hear her, but she actually begins the scene. Uh, uh, Frankenstein or uh, excuse me, Frankenstein or <laughs> Frankenstein in that. So uh, we moved into uh, popular conceptions of Frankenstein here. Uh, we'll try to understand maybe the differences or how we may have uh, changed entirely the conception, our conception of what the creature is. First, it's not Frankenstein. The creature is not named Frankenstein in the novel. It's just the creature, right?
1: It's unnamed. Yeah, it yeah, is yeah. never given a name by Victor or by anyone else. Uh, Victor tends to refer to him by any number of disparaging terms like fiend. Uh, yeah. for, for people writing about him, he's usually referred to either as the creature or the monster, but right. he's, he's left unnamed. Um, and so one of the obvious differences is that Frankenstein, as a term, has entered popular, popular culture as a name for the creature right. rather than for his creator. Yeah, and
0: Frankenstein is the thing that we fear or worry about. The Frankenstein that we should worry about, though, is Victor Frankenstein or is the idea of what Victor Frankenstein had done uh, as a scientist, I suppose whether you whether you agree that you should worry about that or not is up to you. I suppose I'm. I took that position at the beginning of the show, uh, that uh, that the story does warn us against overreach or warn us against not having a moral perspective on the science we do and imagining the consequences of those things. Uh, so so we have currently, uh, I guess, the most common I- image of Frankenstein is that Boris Karloff. Uh, 1931 film. Uh, it's James Whale's film uh, about Frankenstein, and it's you know the monster. he was big and green and lumbering, and has right. the bolts, bolts in, in his neck. His neck. So there's a very mechanistic a uh, perspective of it, right? Yes. Uh, versus in the book, you don't really get a sense of that. Maybe there's the, obviously he's a creature and and somewhat scary, I suppose. But he's he's scarier more in the evocation of what he is than in the visual of what he is. Is that would you say that?
1: Well, I, he's visually horrifying in the novel too. It's right? hard for me to remember how, so, how
0: horrified I might have been by him.
1: So Victor describes him as looking like a mummy has come to life. That his so good. his eyes are yellow. Yellowing eyes. His right. skin is pulled too tight over his mm-hmm. face, and so you can see the muscles working beneath the surface. Oh. Um, certainly. Uh, every human who sees him is horrified at his appearance. Uh, the one person other than Victor to actually have a conversation with the creature is, is Robert Walton. Mm. Um, and that's a feature of the novel that almost always gets left out of yeah, adaptations. About uh, Robert Walton is an Arctic explorer. He's trying to be the first person to reach the North Pole. And so he's trapped in ice, his ship is is locked in an ice flow, and uh, his sailors are threatening mutiny because they want to head back home as soon as the ice breaks. And while he's stuck in these ice floes, suddenly these two dog sleds go by, and one is the creature, and the other is Victor Frankenstein chasing him. Chasing him, right. and uh, Victor becomes uh, cut off from the chase and is brought on board the ship, and gradually tells his story to Walton. Uh, which right? is
0: the yeah the frame story there, and he's like near death too. He's like emaciated, and
1: yes. So they have to revive him, um, and. Victor is at sort of cross purposes about why he's telling this story to Walton. Mm -hmm. So part of the time, he seems uh, to want Walton to carry on his task of chasing the creature and killing him Mm -hmm. if Victor himself should die. Uh, But at other times, he seems to be warning Walton to not make his mistakes, right? To not let scientific ambition distort his view of the well-being of others. And so, spoiler alert, at the end, uh, Walton decides to listen to his sailors and to head back home instead of seeking glory by reaching the North Pole, Mm. right? So he chooses his ethical obligations to other human beings rather than his own... Glory as an explorer. Right. He seems to learn a version of Victor's lesson, yeah. maybe. He,
0: he starts out as a Promethean himself and then turns the ship around. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we have uh, Robert Walton as a Promethean, we have uh, Victor Frankenstein chasing the creature down to the ends of the earth to destroy his, his child, basically, uh, to destroy the thing that he, he gave birth to. And it is the creature himself who constantly, in the story, in the telling of the story, uh, in the middle of the book itself, and I think it was at one point actually right smack dab in the middle of the book, symmetrically in the middle of the book, the creature's story himself, talking about how he was abandoned how this abandonment created in him this urge to revenge and this evil na- nature, he raises himself in a sense on Milton's Paradise Lost and understands his own uh, situation comparably to Adam and Satan in in that book as well.
1: Yes. So he he tells Victor, "I should have been your Adam, right, and right. instead I am the fallen angel." Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. Uh, as you, you mentioned, the creature has to educate himself, right. Victor doesn't educate him. So right. the creature learns language partly from um, overhearing cottagers talk.
0: the blind man and the his, blind man and his family. His family.
1: Mm-hmm. and then partly uh, from fortuitously finding three books abandoned in the woods, and one of them is Paradise Lost.
0: Mm. Right? What, are, what are the others I don't remember
1: uh let's see the sorrows of Werther, mm. i think and uh plutarch oh
0: okay There's those are good but yes. they're all true stories to him
1: he has no concept of fiction mm. initially so yes he takes paradise lost as a true history mm. of actual events um and and feels betrayed that he doesn't have a better parent You know, to model the God-Adam relationship, and instead he feels like he is subject to unjust, absolute authority in the way that that Milton's Satan is Mm -hmm. after he's cast out of of heaven.
0: Might be what Godwin would say as well.
1: Yes, yes.
0: I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show tonight, Our Father Frankenstein. I'm joined in the studio by Monique Morgan, associate professor in the Department of English at Indiana University. So the creature is saying to Victor, all you had to do was look on me with kindness.
1: Yes, yes, he just wanted affection and a sense of companionship, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And at the end of the novel, uh, the the way the chase plays out is that Victor dies on Walton's ship and the creature is heartbroken Mm. because the only thing that was in any way resembling companionship that he ever had was this completely antagonistic relationship with his father figure, right? right? And once he loses Victor, He loses both his double, I mean, they're sort of mirror image, Mm -hmm. inverse versions of themselves, of of each other. Um, He also loses his only chance at a companion like himself being made. Someone created for him. Victor refuses to give Walton the secret of how he created life. And so once Victor dies, The creature has no hope of companionship, Mm. either from Victor or from another creature. So he is despondent and claims that he's going to go commit suicide and burn himself on a funeral pyre in the Arctic. I'm not sure where he's going to get firewood, (laughs) but... (laughs) Maybe well, he'll burn his sledge.
0: Anything can happen. Uh, right. The one thing that I, I, I do want to hit on, too, just that it just struck me that, it, and it is, uh, I think, a part of the, the story is, uh, and we'll go back to the ugliness again of the creature, right? So the blind um, cottager uh, treats him just like any other person. He's uh, someone to have a conversation with, someone who's intelligent. And the, the, the fact that he can't see him allows him to be normal or, you know, to treat him just as anyone else. So the, in, is this a, a specific, other than just saying it's, it's um, other than just saying the creature creates horror in people who have, uh, who, who have eyes that see, is Shelley also trying to say that sight itself is compromised in this, that this is a, a, a difficult aspect of our, our thinking in, a, in its own way?
1: I definitely see her as, as criticizing our superficiality, mm-hmm. right? Our obsession with surfaces and our tendency to want to read the surface as indicative of the essential inner mm-hmm. being, right? Uh, so, one of the assumptions that almost all of the characters make is that the creature's outward deformity must be indicative of some inner evil, right? right? Uh, and Shelley, Mary Shelley seems to be undermining that quite deliberately right although the creature does perform some horrible acts of vengeance
0: he sure right? does he, he he goes after the innocents in the novel right the people who have no actual who've done nothing to him and, but it's all in in uh, his uh, pursuit of his father
1: he goes after anyone connected with victor frankenstein
0: yeah it's a total total war against the, uh, but not himself not not he's not going to hurt frankenstein
1: No, presumably because Victor is his one ticket to a companion. Ah.
0: Do you think that's like he would have killed him otherwise? Or that he was his father and he wouldn't kill him because he's his father? My God in heaven, I'm not going to kill him.
1: I don't know if we can really decide that, Mm. right? Um, That I think is left open-ended in the novel.
0: Well, that's what our job as a reader is, to speculate wildly about things that aren't actually in the novel, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, to speculate wildly based on things that are in the novel. Oh, okay, I can okay. get on board with that.
0: Okay. So um, do our adaptations, as we've uh, talked about them a little bit, they're a constant now. Uh, uh, Franken- well, I don't know if they're still. Well, they are. We just had I, Frankenstein not that too that long ago. We just had... Uh, something by the, the BBC did uh, a companion, like the two, Bennett, Benedict Cumberbatch, didn't they do one? when uh, yeah, Johnny, so d- um, d- uh
1: Johnny Lee Miller and Johnny Benedict and Miller. Cumberbatch did a stage version that was mm-hmm. directed by Danny Boyle, mm-hmm. who's known for films like uh, Slumdog Millionaire and 28 Days Later okay. and Trainspotting. Um, but one of the really interesting aspects of that theatrical production uh, is that uh, Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller traded roles on mm-hmm. alternate nights. So they would switch playing Victor and the creature. That's
0: an interpretation in itself, right? Yes. The, that they are, this, the they are one of the same in some sense. One is Maybe one is head and one is heart?
1: Uh, in a sense, or uh, um, superego and <laughs> id. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Freudian reading. Well, uh, so we, we do have the creature in our common... Uh, understanding as, as the thing that scares us most. Is, do you think that, that um, because the book is Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, the book is named after the doctor, that we need to find a way to shift ourselves, you know, shift that image so we focus more on the doctor than we do normally? I mean, are we stuck with Boris Karloff's Frankenstein? Well,
1: I, I think if we go back to the creature as he is in the novel, um, then,
0: but but Monique, there are movies. There are movies, yeah, but they I mean, always
1: make they always they almost always make the novel? creature mute, hmm. right? So they do. Boris Karloff he talks a lot in the book. does not right. speak right. as the creature, um, and that decision actually goes back much earlier. The very first theatrical adaptation of Frankenstein was uh, Richard Brinsley Peake's Presumption. Hmm. Uh, and it was staged in 1823. Mary Shelley went to see it. And was totally amused by it. Uh, And so in the stage production, they turn it into a melodrama, and the creature is mute. The creature doesn't speak. Hmm. They also have a lab assistant, not named Igor, Igor. but named Fritz. So Fritz becomes the model for later Igors in in later film adaptations. Wow. Um, So we do have that long tradition of the the creature not speaking. Why is that?
0: Why do you think that is? I mean, does speak eloquently in the book?
1: He does. Yeah. It. I think it makes him more of a sort of inhuman other. More of a monster. But that's not her point, right? That that's to not absolutely
0: her point. against the point in the book.
1: I would agree with that, yes. Oh, so uh, Mary are, Shelley very mm. much humanizes the creature, makes him eloquent. He learns from Paradise Lost quite well and speaks yeah. in almost Miltonic uh, English. Far
0: better than I would read and, Paradise Lost.
1: And Victor warns Walton not to be swayed by the creature's rhetoric yeah. because he is a very good storyteller. And and he's also really just full of... Um, pathos It's hard not to sympathize with the creature when he starts off telling his story of being abandoned mm-hmm. in the woods in winter, figuring out the world on his own. And he knows nothing. He's a complete blank slate. He has to actually pay attention to what's happening around him to realize that the, the songs that he's hearing, the sounds right. that he's hearing are... Uh, coming from the throats of the little winged creatures right. right he he doesn't understand bird song until observing it repeatedly yeah. so he has to learn everything from scratch it's he, like yeah. abandoning an 8 foot tall newborn
0: he is sympathetic and unfortunately that's not how we're we've been handed down uh, from i guess 1823
1: forward that's true and i think it's that uh, the, the genre is shifted mm-hmm. when it enters mm, films sure. so it becomes a horror story right. and in Mary Shelley's novel um, it is both going back to a gothic tradition that leads directly into horror films right. that makes sense it's it is scary right. Um, right. but Shelley's novel is also arguably one of the first science fiction novels sure. and so she's really thinking through the consequences mm. of this scientific innovation. She's you know, taking on um, John Locke and David Hume's theories of the mind as a blank slate and the, uh, the need for empirical observation. Uh, she's thinking through Galvani and Erasmus Darwin. So uh, movie versions tend to take that element out Absolutely. and just emphasize the horror.
0: <laughs> Simplify and uh, ex- uh, make it exciting. Yeah, That's our show. Thanks to Monique Morgan for joining me today to share her insights on the most misunderstood creature in literature, the nameless offspring of human arrogance. Thanks, Monique.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: We're closing the show with Split Personality. One last number from Dave Douglas and Keystone off of the album Burst the third section of the trilogy Spark of Being which was inspired by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein next time on Interchange Desperately Seeking Solutions as President-elect Donald Trump makes it clear that the next several years will likely continue the downward trend in real income and living conditions for 99% of Americans as well as a continuing support for tax evasion two new books seek to find different paths for us to tread I'll talk to Chuck Collins an author and activist who was born an heir to the Oscar Mayer fortune and knew it was knew his fortune wasn't earned. In his new book, Born on Third Base, he describes how he gave away his inheritance and went searching for ways to help other wealthy people realize their successes began in accidents of birth and grow upon the poverty of others. Then we'll turn to George Lakey, author of Viking Economics, about how the citizens of the Nordic countries, Sweden, Iceland, Denmark, and Norway, Chose to upend the world imposed on them by the economic elites of their countries. Once mired in poverty and economic inequality, these countries are now thriving examples of the kind of fair societies the industrial world is capable of achieving. It's not perfect and it's not apples to apples, but there's a model here for change. Desperately seeking solutions, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm, thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, Jennifer Brooks is board engineer, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.